So you had these two types of people that were working in shelters at the time. The people that were reconciled to the killing that didn't really care about animals, but it was a paycheck. It wasn't a mission. And then you had people working in the shelters that actually drank the Kool-Aid and believed that the way you protected dogs and cats was by killing them. These dual civil wars that occurred in the animal protection movement created ideas that dominated animal sheltering into the 1990s. You and I came on the scene and we inherited these traditions, one being this myth that killing was kindness, that rounding up and killing animals was how you advocated for dogs and cats. Hi, we're the Winograds. I'm Nathan. And I'm Jennifer. So this is part two of our series, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, Animal Sheltering in the United States. In part one, we went over the early history of the animal protection movement and the founding of our movement by the great Henry Berg in the late 19th century. We talk about how he worked tirelessly to protect animals and create the model that inspired animal lovers across the nation to found their own SPCAs and humane societies following his model of animal activism until his death in 1888, when not only the ASPCA, but those shelters looking to the ASPCA for guidance abandoned their traditional platform of protecting animals in favor of becoming the pound masters in their communities that did little more than kill animals. In part two of this series, we're going to discuss the rifts that began to emerge because of this tension between these organizations that were founded to protect animals being the largest killers of healthy dogs and cats in America, and how that helped shape the movement that we inherited when we became animal activists in the early 1990s. And that that rift, that break with being an organization whose entire focus was helping animals to one that became harming them was almost immediate. And so very, very quickly, you had all these organizations across the country start to kill animals. You had organizations across the country, including the ASPCA, do some things that would have been unimaginable in Henry Berg's time such as when the ASPCA launched a contest for kids, asking them to write into the ASPCA and tell them where all the cats were, the community cats were in their neighborhoods, so that the ASPCA could go out and literally round them up and bring them back to their pound and kill them. In their mind, what they were asking these kids to do is, where are the cats who live outside? who, because they live outside, are suffering, even though cats have lived outside for tens of thousands of years. What's interesting about the fact that the ASPCA was enlisting school children to help them figure out where the cats were so that they could kill them is, is two things. The first thing being that we talked a lot about Henry Berg's advocacy for dogs that were being killed by the Poundmaster before the ASPCA took over that contract. And we didn't really mention cats because at that time, cats there was no animal control for cats. But when the ASPCA took over the, the job of killing the dogs, they also took over the job of killing cats, even though nobody asked them to. And nobody was paying them to do so. And so the ASPCA started killing cats because it became part of their larger narrative that that organization and others like it needed to adopt in order to justify the killing that they were doing as animal protection organizations. And that was this narrative that emerged that killing is kindness and the way that you advocate for dogs and cats that are homeless or on the streets or strays is to round them up and kill them. And that is directly from the notion that there had to be a narrative to bridge this divide between their prior mission and their current one 
which was you now you have to make hurting animals part of the animal protection agenda. Right, but you don't call it hurting animals. Right. You you, you you make it appear that helping animals is taking them off the streets and putting them to death. And they weren't the only ones to do it. When the San Francisco SPCA followed in the ASPCA's footsteps and took over its pound contract, it put out a statement saying that a new day essentially was dawning in the city of San Francisco. And it too started killing the, the dogs and then decided it too was going to round up and kill cats again in a city where nobody asked them to do so. And the, at one point they launched what they called an animal ambulance, but it wasn't an ambulance in the sense of if there was an injured animal, they would go out and get the animal, bring them back to the SPCA, patch the animal up. Instead, it was a vehicle whose job it was to find the cats on the street and round them up. And it talked about how much more effective they were going to be and how much more efficient the effort to get cats off the street was going to be without talking about what was going to happen to those cats and whether or not those cats were suffering and why an organization founded ostensibly to help animals was instead seeking ways to increase the speed and number of animals it killed. I I wonder what precluded them from adopting a program where they did what Henry Berg did, which was look for evidence that these that these animals that had been born and lived on the street and were being cared for by people in their community, the way that you would take care of those animals is to be, whenever you could, help them find a, a secure environment, a loving home, that kind of thing, versus rounding them up and killing them. So let, let's compare what the ASPCA was doing, asking school children to tell us where the kittens are so we can round them up and kill them, and what the San Francisco SPCA was doing, which was create this fiction, this euphemism called an ambulance, which is really a hearse, essentially, that goes around rounding up to kill cats with what Henry Berg did. If you remember from part one, when the city said we have to round up these dogs uh, to kill them because they're a public uh, safety threat, Berg did that precinct by precinct and borough by borough review and found that there wasn't a single documented case of a New Yorker catching rabies from a stray dog in that one summer where there was infighting between the health commissioner and the mayor and the pound simply failed to open and the dogs weren't rounded up, Berg argued that the current season was happily free of the violence and killing of past years. The dogs are happy. Nobody has been rendered unsafe. And so Berg specifically said he did not want his ASPCA to round up and kill stray dogs. And when these organizations took over the pound contract against his expressed desires and against the vision he had for the ASPCA, there was a potential for progress in the sense of creating shelters that took in the most threatened dogs and cats or the most vulnerable, say kittens, and offered them for adoption because they did start to offer some animals for adoption. So you could have had a transition, a a transitory shelter to our own time where they took in the most vulnerable animals and they found them homes while they continued to advocate along Berg's line to leave the dogs alone, to leave the cats alone and not round them up and kill because they did not pose a health and safety threat to people, but they didn't do that. 
Instead, not only did they create this fiction that killing dogs and cats in pounds was a kindness, they actually sought dogs and cats out. Well, because you have to, because if you start to delude yourself into believing that the way that you advocate for dogs and cats is to kill them, then you're sort of, and you know that there's homeless animals out there, then you become sort of a prisoner to the belief that those animals require your assistance to be killed. Right. And, and the fiction that they created, which is, which is where we talk about that there's this tension, was these are organizations that were founded on an animal rights platform that people should not harm animals. And so you had them continue at least for a generation or two in favor of protecting animals from a whole host of harms. As we discussed in part one, some of them were vegetarian and promoted vegetarianism. All of them were against animal research and fought to ban the practice of vivisection in their state. Many of them opposed hunting and fought against hunting. And so they were generally against killing animals, but then they themselves were the leading killers of dogs and cats in the United States. And they needed to they needed a philosophy that can reconcile those diametrically opposed That would bridge actions. the gaps. Correct. And they created the fiction that killing dogs and cats in a pound was not an act of violence. It was an act of love. It was an act of kindness. And they even called themselves havens of mercy, even though that's where dogs and cats went to die. That's a pretty, for people that are listening to this that aren't familiar with the history, it seems an absurd notion to be promoting that the way that you protect animals and just kill them. But clearly, I mean, anyone thinking that really hasn't worked in the modern animal protection movement to understand the extent to which that idea still in many ways is alive and well and is one of the things that we ran headlong into as young animal rights activists when we first came into this cause. I think that that is a great example for people in our own time who have accepted that fiction is it's kind of the George Bernard Shaw quote that custom will reconcile people to any atrocity because imagine if Berg's vision carried the day and his vision was not betrayed by subsequent leaders of the ASPCA and these other organizations and the movement never start, started killing and somebody proposed that today, hey, there are cats here, here on the street, or, you know, there are uh, one too many roaming dogs and we, maybe we should just kill them. The idea that we should start killing them would be an absurdity. One thing that's always helpful is to imagine an analogous situation for people. So imagine a child protection organization saying that the way that you protect children or orphans is to kill them, round them up and kill them. Right. It's unthinkable. You, it's unthinkable. And in fact, it was unthinkable to Henry Berg because when the city alderman asked him to run the dog pound and kill dogs on their behalf, he was aghast and said, let us abolish the pound because he didn't want his organization to do the city's bidding and kill animals. It was unthinkable to him and it should be unthinkable to us, but it wasn't unthinkable to those who betrayed his vision. And in fact, they thought they found a way to side-by-side side kill animals on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, fight to prevent others from killing them. You've said before that this fiction is a like a house of cards that sort of only can stand if you don't start poking at it. 
And um, things happened in the years, in the hundred years since Henry's death, that meant that that idea was stress tested. And one of the first uh, tests that 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 tension really had in earnest occurred in the 1930s, early 40s, right, where th- there was a fight over pound seizure. So you had these two types of people that were working in shelters at the time, the people that were reconciled to the killing that didn't really care about animals, but just became what? It was a paycheck. It was a paycheck. It wasn't a mission. And then you had people working in the shelters that actually drank the Kool-Aid and believed that the way that you protected animals was by killing them. Right. The way you protected dogs and cats. The way you protected dogs and cats was by killing them. But you could also have a more traditional animal protection platform, but by employing this, what we call, like you would call bridge or to paper over this divide between the absurdity of claiming that you help all these other animals, like you stop hunting to protect wildlife or you stop vivisection to protect animals in labs. But the way that you protect dogs and cats is by rounding them up and killing them. That there's that tension there. And they had this bridging over bridging philosophy that put dogs and cats in a separate category. But as long as they as, killed them, because as long, yeah, they the rights of dogs and cats depended on who was doing the killing. So when the killing was done outside the shelter, that was a bad thing. But if if it was a shelter doing the killing, then that was an act of mercy and the thing that right. that's, that's how you advocated for dogs. It and was cats. no longer what was right. Essentially, it was who was right. And that tension actually started a little bit earlier than the 30s and 40s, although that's when it sort of came to to the head when animal researchers, hospitals, laboratories saw these organizations killing millions of dogs and cats. And at the same time, they were either raising dogs and cats to experiment on them or buying them from others to experiment on them. And they made the argument, why don't we just get dogs and cats that are going to be killed anyways and experiment on them? And uh, unfortunately, given the fact that when these organizations took over the pound contract, those who truly loved animals. Well, those who truly embraced an actual animal rights right. flap. They either uncorrupted. Le- they left, right? right? Leaving dogs and cats to the mercy of people who, who were hired specifically to kill animals. And so you did have a lot of these SPCAs and a lot of these humane societies and shelters sell animals to be experimented on. So not only was the initial betrayal which you could argue was the movement's original sin that drove this movement literally off a ditch. Not only uh, were they betraying animals by killing them, but on top of that, they were making money by selling these animals to people who would then torture them. And again, that is yet another betrayal of Berg because he was uh, very much an anti-vivisectionist. In fact, almost every year that the legislature met in Albany, New York, he brought forth an anti-vivisection bill to try to ban the practice in New York State. And it was one of the uh, great regrets of his life that he was not able to be successful in that regard. But so in other SPCAs and humane societies, that fiction that they created to try to reconcile the tension between harming animals on the one hand and helping... To remove the cognitive dissonance, right? Right. Yeah. You know, harming them on the one hand and helping them on the other did result in SPCAs who saw it as an affront to their mission that the animals that were entrusted to them, that they were going to kill, mind you, but that 
they were that these animals that were entrusted to them could possibly be given to vivisectors who would essentially them. yeah strap them on a table and cut them open and so they fought against it and in fact in uh 1917 in california the medical community asked the state legislature to pass a bill that would force shelters, force SPCAs and humane societies to turn over dogs and cats to the medical establishment so that they would have a free source of animals to experiment on. And the shelters banded together and fought back and said that, again, that they were havens of mercy is the term they used for themselves and that they would not release animals and they actually won. And that galvanized these groups to go after this issue head on again. And in the early 1930s, the San Francisco SBCA convinced the board of supervisors to ban pound seizure. And yet again, they were the biggest killers of dogs and cats in the city, but they did not equate mass killing with harm to animals. And when San Francisco succeeded in passing that ordinance, the medical uh, community decided that this was uh, potentially the camel's nose under the tent, that if they didn't address this issue, that uh, more and more communities potentially would pass these kinds of laws. And in fact, there was an attempt to ban pound seizure in California and the medical establishment successfully fought it off. But the issue became national and it, it became the kind of central fight in the 1930s, well into the 1940s between the medical establishment that wanted this free source of dogs and cats that were going to be killed anyways in, in their argument and SPCAs that said it is wrong to kill dogs and cats. It's wrong for you to kill dogs Unless and cats. Unless we do it, right? right? And to be fair, there is a, a qualitative difference between killing an animal the way the SPCAs were doing it, which is cruel by our standards, right? And it was cruel even then, but then taking an animal and torturing that animal in a laboratory and then putting the animal to death. And so if the only choice we had was method of death, obviously one method of death is preferable to another. That wasn't the only choice presented, but it's the fiction that they created. A fiction also that is... It precisely where this split came between the idea of animal rights versus animal welfare. Absolutely. Which, which didn't exist in Berg's time. Absolutely. So this fight continued for two decades until the 1950s when a great betrayal took place. And it... Another great betrayal. Another great betrayal. And it had and defined sheltering for the rest of the 20th century. So this battle raged for two decades until the 1950s. Uh, with, within these organizations, within these, these organizations, warring factions, basically on correct. On the one hand, you had pound seizure. You had the SPCA's that were completely given over to people who didn't care about these animals and were happily selling these animals to researchers because it was a source of revenue. On the other hand, you had a large number of these SPCAs that saw this as a front to their mission of stopping other people from killing dogs and cats. And that put the American Humane Association, which at the time, it was the first and only 
national organization that was supposedly dedicated to companion animal issues to dogs and cats. But the leadership of the American Humane Association was corrupt. And they met in secret with the organizations dedicated to medical research and said, we need to come up with a joint platform and we need to stop the anti-pound seizure elements in our movement. And they asked the medical community to keep this meeting secret. So they were going to work from the inside to try to banish the people that opposed pound seizure. Correct. Or and allow these dogs and cats to be given to researchers to torture. And it's interesting. It, it would be the, the, the last vestige of any sort of animal welfare platform that was a, like a vestige from the days of Henry Berg, where they were just, they would jettison all that and just go back to seriously being exactly like the pound masters that ran the. That they replaced. That they replaced. Exactly. To yeah. better protect dogs and cats. And actually, that's what happened because the medical community was so excited by. The fact that the American Humane Association was essentially going to capitulate and hand them a victory, that they announced this meeting in their newsletters and the progressive, quote unquote, progressive elements. Again, people who were reconciled to killing dogs and cats in the pound, but nonetheless, who were opposed to animal research and opposed especially to handing dogs and trust and cats entrusted to their care to these people to be experimented on both within SPCAs and humane societies around the country and within American Humane itself opposed. And this civil war took place within the movement. And in fact, uh, within AHA itself, where the progressive elements tried to kick the, the corrupt elements off the AHA board, it was literally a battle for the heart and soul of what remained of Berg's humane movement. And unfortunately, those who opposed pound seizure lost and were kicked out of American Humane. They ultimately would go off and form animal rights organizations like the Animal Welfare Institute to focus on the animal rights side of the issue, banning hunting, regulating or banning vivisection and those kinds of issues and turn their backs on dogs and cats and sheltering, basically saying, because remember, they bought into this fiction that killing animals in shelters was not harming them, was an act of mercy. And, but that left dogs and cats in shelters completely at the mercy of those who were the killers. And any notion of protecting dogs and cats or other animals completely disappeared. By the 1960s and 1970s, the SPCAs and humane societies in America were, would have been unrecognizable to Henry Berg because they were the functional equivalent of slaughterhouses and the functional equivalent of the poundmasters that he not only fought, but took to court and prosecuted for cruelty. In so many ways, this battle that you're talking about so defines the animal protection movement that we inherited, or even the one that in many ways persists to, to this day. I mean, when one considers the American Humane Association, they are literally an animal protection organization in name only, because this capitulation with industries that want to hurt animals continues to this day. They are the ones that, you know, at the end of a movie where you see that the guarantees that the animals were treated humanely, 
that's American Humane Association collaborating with the film industry. But basically, they buy the right to have that label at the end of their films. And there's a lot of evidence that the American Humane Association looks the other way during horrible instances of animal neglect or cruelty that occur in films. And in fact, The Hollywood Reporter, which is a magazine that focuses on the film industry, did a a devastating investigation where they looked at all these films where American Humane Association had the certification at the end of the film, which they're paid by the production company to provide. And in movies where not just one animal was harmed or two animals, as, as bad as that is, which should eliminate the label because no animals were harmed, which is what they say means no animals were harmed. But in some movies where there were dozens of deaths of animals, they nonetheless certified for a fee that no animals were harmed in the making of that movie. And also, you know, they sell essentially their label, arguing that slaughterhouses and agricultural companies that kill millions of animals in some of the most brutal ways possible. And also raise them in horrific conditions. In horrific conditions are They doing can buy so, a label from AHA that says they're, that says they're a, humane. That they're doing it in a humane manner. So that was the first big test, the first big civil war in these movements. And it's and, and it the caused, animals lost. And the animals lost. Correct. But it wasn't the only one. So there was another test to the killing is kindness mantra that these shelters were repeating. And that came this time the threat was not or the, the challenge was not ex- internal from the people that had remained uh, true to Berg's vision when it came to other issues, irrespective of shelter killing. Because they left. Because they left. But this one was when the when dogs and cats, what I think in Redemption, your book, you call the three B's, where animals started to go from the barn to the backyard to the bedroom. And more and more Americans uh, fell in love with dogs and cats in a way they had never done before. And these animals became family members. And so then, then these organizations faced having to come up with reasons to rationalize the, the killing of dogs and cats, not to the not to themselves, but to the American public that they were asking for money and donations, right? Well, yes. And you start to see that tension uh, specifically and especially in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. And several factors contributed to people's changing perception of, of their animals and what I called in redemption, the changing bees. They went from the barn to the backyard, into our bedrooms, into our homes. And there were a lot of factors for that, increasing wealth, urbanization, and then suburbanization. And one other factor, especially in the 1970s, was the advent and more widespread use of spay-neuter. And so a lot of the behaviors like roaming and mating and marking territory, that annoyed people with the advent of spay-neuter and the resolution of those people brought them in the house. And so you start having a changing view of the uh, a changing relationship between people and animal companions and a changing view of them. But they had these SPCAs and humane societies that were still stuck in a post-Berg betrayal mindset of let's round up and kill all these animals that the American public loved dearly. And you can see that 
fight kind of come to a head, for example, in Baltimore, Maryland, where animal control would come into these communities and they would round up the dogs that they found on the streets, resting on people's lawns, uh, and they would, you know, take them back to the pound in order to put them to death. And people in the communities would actually pool their resources and bail these dogs out, which were either their pets or they saw as what they call pets of the block in order to bail them out of the pound and release them back into their neighborhood. So on the one hand, animal control was trying to round these dogs up that the people who live there didn't want rounded up. And what you saw with these dogs is eventually they became, they, became, they went from pets of the block to pets. People would adopt them. And they wouldn't gain any weight because they were already getting enough to eat from handouts from the different people in the neighborhood that fed them. So on the one hand, you had really growing humane views on the part of the public and the maintenance of these regressive anti-dog, anti-cat views. And so these organizations uh, started feeling pressure from the public. That was questioning, why are you killing so many animals? Why are animals? you killing so many animals? Why are you taking, why are you taking our, our, our dog? Our and, community dog. Sticking them in yeah, jail and then the killing them. Right. And right. killing them. We don't want you to. And so these, these self-proclaimed leaders of the movement, the heads of large shelters, the health commissioner in Baltimore, Maryland, the Humane Society of the United States, the American Humane Association. They brought the American Kennel Club and they all met. The American uh, Veterinary. The American Medical Veterinary Medical, Medical Association. They met in Chicago in 1974 to look for what they called the causes and solutions to the surplus dog and cat problem. And unfortunately, rather than truly look for solutions to the killing of dogs and cats they were doing. They were very defensive from the outset and it quickly became a search for a scapegoat. And so rather than come up with a plan of how are we going to meet the public's expectations. To do this job truly humanely. Right. By reducing and eventually eliminating the killing of dogs and cats. Instead, they took no responsibility for the killing. They rejected any notion of culpability. They uh, argued that ownerless animals must be destroyed. It is as simple as that. that I mean, that's was, a direct quote. That was a direct quote. And they admitted that they were destroying 90% of the animals they took in and said that is the best that can be expected of us. And that any notion of increasing adoptions could not be done because the animals themselves were not adoptable and deserved to die. In one statement, of course, it came from AHA, which is not surprising. The head of uh, the executive director of uh, AHA at the time, a man named Rutherford Phillips, in a statement that is just reeking with racist overtones, argued that only certain kinds of people were worthy of having pets. And to prove that point, he claimed that past adoptions in what he called ghetto areas were a failure and that these dogs were doing little more than attacking children in schoolyards. That's um, fascinating to consider that those areas that he's, that he's referring to, also the areas that were studied in the Baltimore 
study where actually no these were the, these were the animal lovers they were bailing these animals out they they death yeah by, at, at, at their at Rutherford Phillips hands correct these are people in low income neighborhoods who individually these households could not afford to pay the reclaim fees for these dogs so the the neighborhood would band together and raise money in order to bail out the pets of the block and uh, as I said, when, when these dogs actually moved into very particular homes, very specific homes, and went from pets of the block to pets of a particular home, they didn't gain any weight because they were already of, they were already healthy. Well fed, yeah. Yeah. And, and one other thing was that the groups, when they met in Chicago, agreed at the outset that they would not embrace any platform unless there was unanimity among all the participants. And the inclusion of health departments that saw animals as a threat of the highest magnitude and their mission as eliminating that threat by rounding up and killing them. And the inclusion of industry groups like the American Kennel Club that was threatened by these SPCAs. Uh, adopting more animals because they saw that as a threat to the sale of animals that their members were doing and the inclusion of the veterinary groups and the veterinary associations, a trade group that protected the profits of private veterinarians and saw municipally funded or SPCA run spay neuter clinics as a threat to pri the profits of private veterinarians, they oppose those programs and ensured that any hope that a platform would come out of that conference that would actually help reduce the number of dogs and cats being killed by these slaughterhouses, they assured that was doomed to failure. And in fact, when they met, an organization called uh, Mercy Crusade of Los Angeles had opened the first municipally funded spay neuter clinic in the United States, in the city of Los Angeles, and it was paying off. One, because what they found was that the clinics were being used by poor people who would not otherwise spay and neuter their animals, so it was not taking away profits from private veterinarians. Number two, within the first decade of that program, ultimately the number of animals impounded by the city of Los Angeles was cut in half at a time where it was increasing in other cities. And number three, ultimately an analysis of that program found that for every dollar that they were investing in subsidized spay-neuter, it was paying off in a reduction in the cost of impounding, holding, and then killing animals. So it was a win all the way around, but they didn't want to hear about it. They didn't want to hear about it because the the Veterinary Association was opposed to that. And the AKC was opposed and to it. And keep in mind that they would ultimately meet again a few years later when that LA program was seeing the fruits of its labor. And they not only did not embrace subsidized spay-neuter, they actually opposed it. They, you know, think about the Humane Society of the United States, AHA, Berg's ASPCA, and SPCAs and humane societies around the country beholden to the AKC, beholden to the American Veterinary Medical Association, beholden to health departments, 
and opposing subsidized spay neuter, the one program that at the time was seen as having the most potential to reduce the killing of dogs and cats in shelters. And so at this meeting, they came up with a platform. When they left there, they had all agreed not to follow what the evidence was showing was in the best interest of dogs and cats, but they adopted an alternative platform that basically said, it's not us, it's you, and you being the American public. And they came up with this plan that they were going to then distribute to shelters or animal control pounds basically across the country and say, this is the plan that you need to adopt, and this is how you answer public concerns regarding the number, your job performance. Yeah, the number right? of animals This, this is what you tell them. The fact that you're killing 90% of the animals. Right. And so this is how you say that you're addressing the problem, but you're not really addressing the problem. You're just providing yourself with political cover. So what was the plan that they adopted? So it was called legislation, education, and sterilization. And before people get too excited about that sterilization prong, it's not what people think. Uh, Well, the first was legislation, which was aimed at requiring people to keep better track of their pets. Usually that was done through confinement laws. So like a dog and cat leash law saying that it is illegal uh, to allow dogs and cats to roam outdoors and to to license them with authorities. Uh, the ed- so you're just creating more opportunities to seize animals. And conflict with the public. And you have no in place no alternatives to killing when you impound those animals. So those kinds of laws are counterproductive. They're going to exacerbate the, the number of animals you take in and thus the number of animals you kill. Second, they wanted to educate uh, children about responsible pet ownership, you know, in hopes that they would grow up. And that's what they called it, responsible pet ownership, in hopes that they would grow up with more humane attitudes. Taking your resources, which could be used to help animals today by, for example, subsidizing the cost of sterilization or providing a spay-neuter clinic. Instead, they are sending these staff members into elementary schools and having the kids learn about dogs and cats in hopes that in 15 years that... uh, And again, this is focused on the idea that it's somebody else's... It's somebody else's responsibility and fault and, and that there's no immediacy to actually look at what cause and effect and what was really causing all these deaths. Correct. And the third prong was sterilization. And, you know, here they could have struck gold by embracing this model that was proving so successful in Los Angeles and eventually San Francisco. Uh, but low it's cost, free low spay co- neuter. Free, low cost, subsidized spay neuter for the pets of the poor. Instead, they opted for punitive measures to force people to spay neuter their pets while opposing low cost sterilization. So, and on the threat of impound. On the threat of impound and killing. And also they asked for more research into non-surgical methods of sterilization so as not to upset private veterinarians who were at the meeting and whose industry associations were opposed to it, which, you know, what is it, 60 years later, 70 years later, we're still researching. But what happened was they printed out thousands of copies of their findings, opposed low-cost subsidized spay-neuter, ownerless animals must be destroyed, it's as simple as that, and enact punitive legislation and sent them to shelters, to SPCAs and humane societies across the country, 
And so at the time, what you see is... And, and they followed. I mean, this was success. They were successful getting everyone to adopt these talking points. Yes, because you see municipalities across the country passing laws that require dogs and cats to be confined in homes, that require dogs and cats to be licensed with local authorities on threat of impounded killing, that limit the number of animals a family could care for, that prohibit the feeding of community animals and that provide authority for animal control officers to seize and destroy the pets that they themselves deemed a nuisance just by virtue of the fact that they're sitting on someone's lawn. And we have firsthand experience with fighting, in fact, that very specific thing. So this, these dual civil wars that occurred in the animal protection movement created these two ideas that dominated animal sheltering into the 1990s when you and I came on the scene and we inherited these traditions. We were definitely ran headlong into these, these dual problems. Number one being this, this myth that dominated animal sheltering, which was that killing was kindness, that rounding up and killing animals was how you advocated for dogs and cats. And the second one- That, being, that in fact, was the mission of an SPCA. That an SPCA, that, that's what they're supposed to do. And you don't question that because that's, mercy, that's what mercy is for homeless dogs and cats that end up in shelters. And secondly, there was all these attempts across the country, all these misperceptions about what was actually causing animals in shelters to be killed because this model was being promoted, that the way that you did that was through passing laws that try to control people's behavior rather than trying to encourage people to do the right thing by, for instance, sterilizing, making spay, neuter, low cost or free. In fact, it wasn't just about controlling people. It was about killing animals and fighting these kinds of laws that killed animals and punished the people who cared for them. And uh, tried to make it easier for shelters to be able right. to kill animals. And so you and I first met when the Fund for Animals and the Humane Society of the United States were trying to pass two laws in California. One was AB 302, which would have created a leash law for cats making it illegal for cats to be outdoors on threat of roundup and killing. And, you know, you and I were doing feral cat work at the time, and it wouldn't even carve out an exception for community cat caretakers who were caring for these feral cats. So they could not be outdoors. And in fact, the head of the Fund for Animals, which was pushing these bills, made the argument that it should be illegal to trap cats except for the purposes of proper disposal, as if they were nothing more than trash. And the second law, which was AB 1000, which would have required all cats outdoors to have proof of a rabies vaccination by a tag and would have given animal control officers to kill cats on site the authority in the street. Cats if they didn't have a rabies tag on them, even though there had not been a cat to human rabies transmission case in the United States for half a century. And California at best saw one cat rabies case a year. It would have been a wholesale slaughter. Those two pieces of legislation would have meant a wholesale slaughter of uh, cats throughout the state. And so we came together to fight this bill and that's where we first met. But we both came to the same place 
in terms of our views about how the animal shelter movement lost its ways about the same time. Even our experience. So why don't you talk about how you came to be at that meeting? It's interesting to hear, to, to have this discussion of the history of animal protection and to realize how much it actually informed my experiences when I first got, got into the movement, because in every way philosophical, I was beholden to the vision of Henry Berg, right? I And I didn't understand that there was this rift in the movement, this creation of this whole other alternative way of viewing dogs and cats. If they entered a shelter, all bets were off and they didn't have the same rights as the other animals. I was in my early 20s when we, or mid-20s when we met, and I had moved to the San Francisco Bay Area to go to college. And I read some animal rights books and, you know, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do in college, but when I read these books, everything became very clear to me that this is the cause I wanted to dedicate my life to. And at that time, I mean, the platform that I adopted was one and advocate till this day is a very traditional animal rights, rights platform that animals have the right to live, all animals. You know, it doesn't matter what use a human might want to make of them. Animals have the right to live. And so I did several things to try to pursue a career in that. And I went to work at several animal protection organizations. The first one was in defense of animals. And if there was a couple anecdotes that I could give that introduced me to this dysfunction in the animal movement, there are several. But, but one of them was I was in the back cleaning out some supplies and organizing supplies at in defense of animals. And there was some, some posters there that I picked up and I enrolled one of them to look and see what is this because where does it go? And it was a picture of dead kittens. It, it was basically promoting an event that had occurred where a shelter director, and you talk about this in your book, Redemption. In fact, you open your book, Redemption, with this story, a shelter director that at that time I knew, I didn't know this history of hers, but I knew her as an animal rights person. Well, she named a chicken after you. I had actually even, yeah, rescued a chicken that I took to her that she kept on her farm. And I didn't understand all this other that she had bifurcated her advocacy, that she had this sanctuary where she rescued farm animals. But then she was this fierce advocate for the killing of dogs and cats. And this poster basically was part of a promotional event that she had done where she had killed some kittens on live television when she was the director of the Peninsula Humane Society. Also in the Bay Area. Also in the Bay Area. And I remember looking at this poster and first of all, thinking this is, these are dead kittens. Why is this poster, this is an animal rights organization. What is this? And I remembered the language on it, attempting to sell the idea that, I mean, so to, to back up and say why she did this, it was her hope that by broadcasting this on television, it would shock the public into behaving better. That was her thinking. Very much in line with the model where it's not us, it's you. And, you know, a million things ran through my mind when I looked at this poster, which is those kittens in that moment did not have to die. Like there's another million other things that you could have done to find those kittens homes. And they were part, their lives, their deaths were part of a publicity stunt. And I was sickened by it, utterly sickened, and but also very confused. But a lot of things started to become clear to me about this narrative that had taken hold of me, of in, even in the animal rights movement when I started to learn more about the way that the no-kill movement was talked about. So at this time, there was there were no-kill shelters in the country that weren't killing animals. But whenever I ha- would have a discussion with other animal rights advocates about that, I would get all these very odd rationalizations for why no-kill shelters themselves were bad and that the people that were killing the animals in pounds, that they were doing the, the real work for animals because these animals didn't, they were, they were repeating 
the havens of mercy sort of narrative that had taken hold in the animal rights movement. And I didn't buy into it. I just thought, what are you, what on her, what are you talking about? Right. And then my experience with at that time, which is another thing that was very formative for both of us, was the San Francisco SPCA. So before you talk about your experiences with the San Francisco SPCA, let's talk a little bit about what was happening in San Francisco at the time, because it very much informs this larger national fight that was occurring that you were experiencing firsthand. And that is in the mid-1970s, the San Francisco SPCA, which had been killing 20,000 plus animals a year. It was so bad that one member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors called the shelter a bloodbath, is, is what he referred to it as. And a new director took over in the mid-1970s by the name of Rich Avanzino. He was an outsider to the movement, so he didn't come in with the historical baggage that we've been talking about in the first podcast with the portrayal of Berg's vision and the battle over the heart and soul of these shelters in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And he started to innovate with a whole series of new programs to try to keep animals in their homes, to try to reduce the number of animals that came into the shelters, and that tried to increase the number of animals that found homes through the shelter. Programs like uh, Free Spay Neuter, like a Behavior Helpline, like uh, Holiday Adoptions, like uh, Feral Cat Sterilization Programs. His focus was on trying to get people to make it easy for people to do the right thing, and they will. And he started to see a payoff. And he started to see the number of animals impounded decline, the number And of, nobody else in the country, no other shelters were doing any of these things at that time. In fact, the San Francisco SPCA pioneered all these programs that are hardly controversial now, even though we would argue that they're still in short supply. But nonetheless, he was implementing these programs and he actually took that model to a national conference of all these groups, HSUS, AHA, the ASPCA, these shelters to say, hey, instead of spending our time helping employees cope with the supposed stress of killing, Instead of throwing up our hands, here's what we're doing in San Francisco, and here are the results we're starting to achieve. And they didn't want to hear about it because uh, it took the it took the onus it put the onus on them. Right, they, he you, you want us to work harder. Right, he described people asleep during his presentation. He described people walking out and not wanting anything to do with it. And uh, and so this was the seeds of a new kind of sheltering. And so by the 1990s... Yeah, so in the 1990s, when I became an animal rights advocate, I was working at these animal rights organizations, but I was also volunteering at the San Francisco SPCA. So I was an adoption uh, volunteer. And in my other free time, I was doing feral cat work. For instance, there was a feral cat colony at a high school in, in San Francisco. And so I went in there and tr tried to you know, implement a TNR program. There was a colony of feral cats near my house, and I would Im worked on implementing a TNR program for those cats. So that work and the fact that the San Francisco SPCA, not only did I volunteer there and I, did I see the methods that they were employing to try to increase their adoptions and not kill animals, one way being adoption outreach, where they would take animals out into the community, and I was an adoption coordinator for that. 
thought that was just so creative and such a great way to incre- you know bring animals out into the community and in- in- increase adoptions. And then doing this feral cat work and seeing that while the San Francisco SPCA was very proactive in terms of trying to help animals, it, it contrasted so greatly with the local animal care and control, which was a nightmare, absolute nightmare for anyone that had to deal with them, especially if you were if there were feral cats that had somehow ended up impounded there. The stress and anxiety of having to deal with how much animal care and control favored killing and the, the feeling of knowing that an, a particular cat that someone had been caring for got, somehow got impounded and was there and was under a death threat, knowing that you had to get through this person that ran animal care and control to be able to save the animals was just a nightmare. And it was such a contrast to what the San Francisco SPCA was doing. And San Francisco SPCA was, how can we help you help animals? Whereas a animal care and control was, how can we make your life as miserable as possible in your your work to help animals because we really want to kill this cat that we've impounded and we're going to make it so hard for you to to redeem that cat. And so having that personal experience with a shelter that was trying to counter what was going on at Animal Care and Control was so formative for me. And that to me was the animal rights approach. That's what an animal protection organization should be doing. And so dealing with all these other animal rights advocates, many of whom had been indoctrinated into this mindset that dogs and cats are different when they enter shelters. Animals have rights unless they're in a shelter, and then killing them is how you advocate for those animals. And the people that are questioning that killing, they're, they're mean. They're basically mean to the people that are doing the real hard work, which is killing. And my firsthand experience again and again was that this was wrong, that we could do so much better than all this mass killing because I could see, as a volunteer for the San Francisco SPCA, what being willing to try something different or embrace the community rather than try to punish them, that that was the direction that the movement should be going. And especially because animals ended up living rather than dying. And that is the central tenet of the animal rights movement. All of the rights flow from the idea that animals have a right to live. Because without the right to live, none of the other rights matter. Well, they could be taken away by killing. So how do you guarantee? You can't guarantee any right. right. How do you guarantee an animal has food, water, shelter when you can take all those rights away by killing the animal? But, but that tension came to a head for you at a meeting in 1993, a year before you and I met. So explain what that meeting was about and what happened. So it's important to know that the San Francisco SPCA had, obviously you had discussed how it had been the pound master. It had been doing the killing. And they decided, what year was it that they gave up? So in 1989, when Rich Abenzino was in charge of the San Francisco SPCA, they decided that they were going to not do that, and that they were no longer going to kill animals, round them up and kill them. And I don't know that he realized this, but essentially re-embraced the Berg model of being an advocate for animals in, in your community and not the pound master. And actually re-embraced the wider animal rights platform by fighting to protect wildlife, by fighting to protect the cats in the community, by dealing with issues of transportation and food animals. Right. He, and he created fights. a... You know, he, they oppose glue traps in the city. Live animal uh, markets. Protecting pigeons in so many different ways. In fact, later on, I mean, I even taught a class on embracing vegetarianism for the San Francisco SCCA. So yeah, they, they really did... It, they rejected the, the job of killing the animals. Re-embraced the they roots re-embraced. of the movement. They did. So in addition to the fact that they had created a law and advocacy department 
that was always on guard for where are animals in the community that need our advocacy beyond just dogs and cats. Like you said, he advocated for pigeons. He advocated for animals in live markets that were being, like turtles and frogs that were being abused. He challenged vivisection at the University he, of California. He worked to San reform Francisco. the zoo. He yes, make the he, make the housing more humane at he, the at the San Francisco fought Zoo. The zoo's regressive practices and policies, and he fought against when the National Park Service wanted to kill the deer on Angel Island. He fought against that when the U.S. Navy wanted to kill the feral cats on Treasure Island. He fought successfully fought against that. The Department of Law and Advocacy. Ultimately, I mean, you would go to work. Just uh, you did work at the Law and Advocacy Department, right? And and we did things like uh, fight glue trap use in city buildings. We successfully negotiated an agreement with the San Francisco Housing Authority to allow pets and to allow TNR on all its. I think it was fourteen properties uh, in the city. We worked with landlords to increase the number of apartments and houses for rent that allowed animals. We advocated against the killing of animals that nativists considered, quote unquote, non-native and therefore unworthy of protection. So it was a very broad mandate that would have made Henry Berg proud. Very proud. And it didn't matter what species they were. It was a true society for the prevention of cruelty. Yeah, animals. we fought against the rodeo. We right. fought against circuses that that. Uh, so this was what animals, I was seeing exploited animals. It, and but interestingly, something that Bergen didn't do, which was, they also provided sheltering. Right, and so when when Avanzino gave up the animal control contract, he returned it back to the city. So in 1989, the city built and ran its own pound, and San the Avanzino's SPCA by 1993. Uh, its programs had such an impact that it, like Burrick, who eventually turned his attention to the cruelty that was occurring at the hands of city dog catchers, Avanzino turned his sights to the animal control shelter, which was located right across, right the, across street. the street. So, but his to save whole... the dogs and cats that they were putting to death. Right. So his he thought the goal of this organization that I, is as an animal protection organization is to advocate for the animals in the community. And we advocate for the animals being killed at the local pound by rescuing them from death row. Right. But Richard Avanzino ran into the same problem in wanting to do that, that I had run into, which was the person that ran the animal care control at that time was a nightmare. Was committed to killing. He was committed to killing. And he, and if you wanted to save animals, he would make your life miserable. And so Sam, uh, Richard Avanzino tried on multiple occasions to, well, he went to the Animal Commission. Let's go there. Okay, so he but he wanted to because he was running into these roadblocks. Correct, and also he wanted to create a model that would galvanize people across the country. He wanted a guarantee that it would be illegal for the pound to kill him, and he goes before the San Francisco Animal Welfare Commission, which is an advisory committee to the Board of Supervisors and proposes animal protection laws. And Rich Avanzino tells the commission in, in October of 1993 that killing animals in the city shelter is not a necessary evil. It's just evil and we don't have to do it. 
And the way we end it is by making it illegal for the city shelter to kill an animal if a nonprofit rescue group or other shelter is willing to save that animal, what he called the Adoption Act. And you would think that given that Avanzino was willing to take thousands of animals off death row from the city shelter, sparing those animals' lives, sparing the staff and animal control from killing, quote-unquote, having to kill the animal and take on all the expense and all the work of finding them homes that they would have enthusiastically, enthusiastically embraced the Adoption Act. But they did not. They did not. They fought it. And because the Animal Welfare Commission was made up of representatives of not just the city shelter, but the San Francisco Police Department and the San Francisco Health Department, other government agencies, they didn't even have a vote. The committee said to Rich, we're not going to pass the Adoption Act. You and the head of the city shelter should come to some sort of voluntary agreement. Uh, which after months of delay and public pressure, they finally did. And the Adoption Act became the Adoption Adoption Pact. And deaths in San Francisco plummeted to the point that San Francisco became the safest urban city for homeless dogs and cats in the United States. Okay, so given that these organizations were telling the public that they didn't want to kill the animals, but it, it was necessary, they that they didn't have a choice. And then now along comes a pretty beloved institution in the city of San Francisco that has a whole shelter set up to take these animals off death row into the San Francisco SPCA and save them. And San Francisco Animal Care and Control box and says, no, if you were at that meeting, it would be very clear why that was the case. And that was because it was filled with his colleagues from surrounding communities. And the director of animal care and control knew that the success that San Francisco was having was putting tremendous pressure. And, and, and at that time, Ramir Chavanzino was very much promoting the success that San Francisco was having. It was putting tremendous pressure on the kill shelters that surrounded San Francisco. All across the country. Actually. And across the country. But I mean, the one, people that came to that uh, meeting were local shelter directors who were terrified of what the Adoption Act would prove if enacted that the killing that they themselves were doing was unnecessary. Right. Because, and it could not be allowed to happen. Right. Because they ripped the rug out from the narrative that they had been promoting that this was a necessary evil. Right. Because people would start asking if it can happen there, why can't it happen here in our community, wherever that was? And, and I there mean, was no good answer. It was a start. I mean, I was at that meeting. I gave a statement in, def in promoting it and in defense of it, surrounded by people that I knew that were, would tell you at that time that they were animal rights advocates, like this woman that was there that ran Fun for Animals at that time, located in San Francisco, opposing it. It was, it was surreal. So that's how I ended up at that meeting. And you ended up that meeting, you down, the, down on the peninsula, 40 miles away from where I was going, what the hell is going on? You were having the same what the hell is going on moment around the exact same time because of what was occurring for you at Stanford University. So my experience was somewhat similar to yours with this awareness of how terribly broken animal sheltering in the United States was. When I first moved into the dorms on campus as a first-year law student at Stanford, the morning I woke up of my, literally my first night. So, well, first of all, when I got to campus, 
My mom always fed the neighborhood cats and she always brought them in and we tried to find them homes. And when my older sister went off to college, she started rescuing cats where she was in Boston. And then I went as an undergraduate to school, to college in San Diego. And I started caring for the alley cats where I was. And so I thought that's what you do when you see animals in need, you help them. Well, back up a little bit, because it, it was also when you were, you became an animal rights advocate. Like I became, you know. Yes, I became an animal rights uh, advocate because I went uh, into a bookstore and I was just browsing on the shelves and I saw a book called Slaughter of the Innocent. And I was like, what is this about? And it was an eye-opening. Well, my introduction was an anarchist bookstore in Haight Street where I read Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. Yeah. I, mind uh, blown. Mine was the Bodhi Tree in Los Angeles, <laughs> uh, an alternative bookstore where I learned about vivisection. And then I took a year off between undergraduate and law school and went traveling around the world and actually got off the train station in Austria. And somebody was there and said, do you need a place to sleep tonight? There was a group of us. And he said, you could spend the night in our barn. And it was an operating dairy farm. I saw these cows chained about the neck and the chains were eating into the neck of the cows and it was open sores and there were flies buzzing around and, and maggots and these, and it was so horrific that I resolved there and there that I was never going to participate in that kind of cruelty. And I became vegan. And so I got to law school and I woke up my first morning living in the dorms and I hear this. Woman, wow, that was your first morning. I don't remember that. It was your very first morning. Yes, and I uh, hear this woman calling out the cats in that high pitched voice that people use when talking kitties. Yeah. And then, of course, that was a siren song to oh, your ears. Yes. They're like cats. I got there's so cats. excited. So I ran downstairs <laughs> and I see all these little cats coming out of the bushes and this woman with food. And I approach and she, you know, recoiled. But basically she saw this disheveled young man coming towards her. And I assured her I would. Well, she recoiled because she was worried that you were hostile to the cat. Correct. Not her. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. And I assured her I was a fellow cat lover. And we got to talking about her and her work and the work of other volunteers of a group that came to be known as the Stanford Cat Network. So at one point, the university estimated that there were about 1,500 cats living on the Stanford University campus. And they proposed a plan where they would use their existing pest control company to round up the cats and put them to death. And for the cat lovers on campus, the people who fed the cats, who looked after the cats, who built little feeding stations for the cats. This was, of course, inhumane. And so they turned to the local Humane Society, the Humane Society of Santa Clara Valley, uh, which ran animal control for Santa Clara County, which is the county where Stanford University which campus is. incidentally sent a representative to that meeting that I had been at opposing the adoption act. Uh, which is not surprising no. because although I didn't know it at the time, the thinking was that saving the lives of the Stanford cats was within the humane mission of the Humane Society of Santa Clara Valley. So this is when you still believed what a lot of people mis mis 
that it was the job that, that of humane believe, society to help in, about, right? right? That humane societies and SPCAs are filled with animal lovers who would leave no stone unturned if it meant an animal lived instead of died. But the Humane Society of Santa Clara Valley sided with the university and said, yes, these cats should be put to death because they're outdoors. And there you go. There's that narrative of that's how you advocate for animals, right. that killing is kindness. They did say, but you shouldn't kill them. Let us do it. Bring them to us and, and we'll, we'll kill we'll, them for you. For quote unquote humanely, right? Right. That was their argument. And again, being in, in the Stanford Cat Network's naivety, they turn to the Humane Society of the United States thinking, well, something's wrong with this local Humane Society, but surely saving the lives of the cats is within the humane mission of the Humane Society of the United States. But they sided with the Humane Society of Santa Clara Valley, which sided with Stanford University, which advocated that they be put to death, rounded up and killed, because arguing that cats belong in homes and if they're not in homes, they belong in garbage bags, in the landfill, riding in landfills, or thrown in an incinerator and turned to ash. And this was an affront to people who loved cats. And so the Stanford Cat Network volunteers, which included students, staff, and faculty, including Nobel laureates, banded together to form the Stanford Cat Network and convinced the university to allow them to set up feeding stations officially, to recognize the feeding stations and to allow them to sterilize and return the adult cats who are not social with people and to adopt out the friendlies and the offs and the kittens. And ultimately, after a bit of a battle, the university did a study and found that the cats posed no risk to anybody on campus and that they were healthy and officially sanctioned the Stanford Cat Network. And the nation's first university TNR program in the nation was born. And that's how I got introduced into the beautiful, compassionate side of the movement through the Stanford Cat Network and the corruption and dysfunction and killing-oriented evil of the sheltering establishment. And when I found out that legislation was introduced in California to do what they tried to do at Stanford, to every cat in California, round them up and kill them. And I heard that there was this meeting halfway between San Francisco and Palo Alto where I was. To fight this bill, I decided I was going to join, and that's where you and I met. And after successfully, we successfully lobbied legislators and fought, killed. Yeah, and there was, I mean, we were a pretty small group, right? We were a small you, group. It was, better it was five of us. Every shelter in California and the State Humane Association, the California Animal Control Directors Association... Uh, the Humane Society of the United States, the Fund for Animals, all the large national groups which embrace these two bills. And we fought back and we won. And so, yeah, that, that's how we met. And pretty much from that moment on, we've been inseparable. And we began fighting for animals. We were animal rights advocates. So it wasn't just the dogs and cats that we were advocating for. But we, we fought for raccoons. You had an animal rights organization at Stanford that you ran and you took on vivisection there, you tried to highlight some of the more cruel experiments in housing that was going on for animals at Stanford University. And 
you ended up going to work as even as a law student, you went to go work at the San Francisco SPCA in their law and advocacy department. And focused on fighting efforts to kill animals deemed non-native at the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, which was part of the National Park Service, to protect the feral cats on Treasure Island, to expand housing opportunities for renters. We worked on improving conditions at the zoo. We fought the rodeo. We fought glue traps. We advocated for wildlife, just working on a whole range of issues to protect animals in the city of San Francisco. And because we were doing those things and because we were so successful at life-saving that the death rate in San Francisco was a fraction of the national average. I mean, we eliminated the killing of neonatal kittens in the city. We had reduced the killing of treatable animals to uh, national lows. We were the subject of intense opposition by shelters in surrounding communities and by the large national organizations like the ASPCA, like the Humane Society of the United States that fought us tooth and nail and attacked every program that we tried to implement. And at one point, because this battle was waging on a national level with what we were doing in San Francisco, advocating for life-saving and these national organizations and other shelters promoting killing, one national group, which was a more traditional animal rights group and had kind of taken a neutral position, you know, like the original, one of the sins from that came from the 1950s, decided to hold a summit for the animals in Washington, D.C., in order to come to a consensus. Well, I think back up a little bit and discuss the kind of misrepresentation that was going on and the success of the San Francisco SVCA. I mean, they became vilified in the larger traditional animal welfare or organizations just lied about the success that was going on in San Francisco, tried to misrepresent it. Um, I mean, they f it wasn't just that they ignored it, but they actively fought it. And they fought dirty. I mean, they yeah. lied. They claimed uh, that the only reason we could be successful is because animals were turned away, which was not the case because they were all going into animal control and people would reclaim from there and adopt some animals from there. And the healthy and treatable animals that they put on death row then would go to either other rescue groups or the San Francisco SBCA where they were guaranteed a home. So collectively, the city had reduced killing to a fraction of the national level, and they misrepresented that, inflated the number of animals that were killed by thousands, and actively fought some of the programs that yeah, we I tried to implement. So the San Francisco SBCA was experimenting with programs that were such common sense alternatives to killing but were completely opposed by these organizations that thought that any alternative to killing would, ex again, like it, you said, it, it was a house of cards that you cannot poke at, that this killing was necessary. And if they allowed programs that started to prove that if they did things differently, then the death rate would decrease, that was a threat to the narrative that had dominated for so long that it's not our fault, it's the public's fault, right? So what were some of the programs that seem so non-controversial now, but were incredibly controversial then? Well, for example, I know there were other organizations doing, you know, TNR work, trap, neuter, release, but San Francisco was the first city that implemented it citywide. And uh, HSUS called it subsidized abandonment. And 
fought efforts to save those cats. And when the vice president of companion animals for HSUS was asked if he would ever accept sterilization, what we now call community cat programs, instead of killing, he said, never, no, 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 and never. And uh, San Francisco SPCA was the first organization that really put a massive emphasis on foster programs. So traditionally, underaged kittens were put to death. And the San Francisco SPCA enacted a bottle feeding kitten program through fostering. And as I said, we actually eliminated the killing of all neonatal deaths. The Humane Society of the United States said that we were merely delaying killing. Right, because you'll, you'll foster them, but then you'll come, they'll come back into the shelter when they're ready for adoption. And have to be killed because there's too many. But anyway. that was not the case. No, they weren't. You know, overall, we reduced kitten deaths by 96%, you know, to the point where uh, the only kittens dying in the city were those who were irremediably suffering. And in uh, my own personal experience also with the San Francisco SPCA as a volunteer was that they wholeheartedly w- welcomed the public in to help with animals, which was another fight, like so many shelters at that time would not allow volunteers yeah, we had the shelter to do the, the things that right. would save the lives of animals. Well, precisely because volunteers are the eyes, ears, and conscience of the community. And if you are... And they're there frequently, so patterns start to emerge. Right. They start to see things may not be a one-off, but that... If things aren't clean, yeah. if shelter employ- pound employees are cutting corners, if they're killing animals who have a place to go, either because they're not open every day for adoptions as we were. They are not working with rescue groups as we were. Like if you're doing bad things, killing animals, mistreating them, not cleaning, then you don't want volunteers because they will go public. And so, But we welcome them. Uh, we were a transparent shelter. When San Francisco started doing offsite adoptions. Uh, so explain what that is. Like. Where, so, you know, like, like most shelters, the shelter uh, for animal control and the shelter for the SPCA were originally built in an out-of-the-way area away from key business and residential corridors away from where people work, live and play. And so if you wanted to adopt an animal, you had to go to an industrial part of the city where most San Franciscans never went. And you had to go by these more convenient places to get an animal. And so the idea was if people can't or won't come to the shelter, let's take the shelter to them. Let's take the animals and set up temporary adoption areas around the city where people live, work and play. Just to uh, create multiple opportunities to introduce animals to the public. And to get more people. Create opportunities for people to, to adopt follow up. Animals right? in their own communities, in their own, in their own parts of the city. And so the SPCA started not only just doing offsite adoptions on the weekends here and there, but that we had at its height seven offsite adoption locations every day of the week. So 49 total adoption events every week. We were out there in multiple parts of the city. So you couldn't go anywhere in San Francisco. If you wanted to adopt an animal, there was a place to adopt right near you. In fact, the effort was so successful that at one point there were no pet stores in the city still selling dogs and cats because we had outcompeted them. And that has happened in other communities, you know, since then, where if you if the shelter becomes really proactive about maximizing adoptions, that the other sources for animals, that commercial sources can't compete. And I mean, it, so that's interesting. 
No Kill also fights puppy mills and Correct. kitten mills. Because and also when San Francisco started doing holiday adoptions, because traditionally the idea that HSUS and these other groups were promoting were that people couldn't be trusted to adopt animals during the holidays. Because they had fed, or they had also, you know, their their whole narrative rested on the idea that the public was irresponsible and couldn't be trusted. And Right. And them. so their argument was the the dog adopted for Christmas will be back in the shelter in January. Even though they, there was no studies and no surveys to look into whether that was simply true or not. And in fact, the San Francisco SBCA did surveys and found it was not true, that there was the what they called the failed adoption rate or the number of animals who were adopted and then came back was no different in December or January than it was in June or July. Well, more to the point, I mean, they're still alive. So even if, even, right. if, if you just consider January, it as a contemporary foster Yeah, you can consider care. it foster. And even if they come back in January, you can find a home for them. But the alternative of stopping adoptions for a month month or more means those animals are guaranteed to be killed because shelters are still taking animals in. And so this thing you fear, claim to fear, that if we adopt you this dog or cat in December and you bring them back in January, we, quote unquote, might have to kill the dog and cat. In so January. let's just kill them now. It makes absolutely, absolutely no, no sense. sense. It's right. an ethical contradiction. Uh, and so all these programs that are either not no longer controversial or less controversial now that were pioneered in San Francisco were a fight and they fought dirty. You know, even as late as the mid-1990s, the Humane Society of the United States was telling other shelters, you should not work with rescue groups by giving them animals that you are going to kill because, I kid you not, they argued that transferring animals to rescue groups would stress the animals during transport. So basically taking the animal to the vet or doing anything that involves or adopting moving the animal, the animal, the animal anywhere. has to get yeah, to a car and go home. home or right. fostering an animal. But they were saying kill the animals instead. And they were promoting these ideas to other shelters in, in their publications. I mean, there was it was a civil war. They there, were there they were saying literally a w national workshop called Don't, Don't Let What, what happened, happened in San Francisco, Francisco Happen in Your Community. And so this animal rights group decided that they were going to be the great peacemakers, that they were going to create what they called the Summit for the Animals in order to get the no-kill movement, which was fighting to save the lives of animals, and the regressive movement epitomized by groups like the Humane Society of the United States, the National Animal Control Association, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and the ASPCA and these other groups that were committed to killing them. And, and committed to these old narratives that justified the killing. And, and the actively fighting what we were trying to do in San Francisco for the animals of the city and leading by example, therefore export abroad. And so I went to the summit for the animals as a representative first and foremost of the Stanford Cat Network, because they had asked that... And only at that time, you were on the board of the Palo Alto Humane Society as well. Right. I was on the board of the Palo Alto Humane Society, and we had this successful TNR program on campus, which started out with a high of what was guesstimated to be about 1,500 cats, that by the time I went to the Summit for the Animals in Washington, D.C., was reduced to about 50 
Um, because they also found homes for any we cats that were homes. friendly, right? Yeah. Over the years, the oldies, you know, died and they lived to ripe old ages. And uh, part of uh, the program, the Stanford Cat Network, was an active education program to get students not to not to bring in cats and then dump them at the end of the year, which is how the population exploded, that if they missed their cats at home, that they should come volunteer for the Stanford Cat Network and work with us and work with the Palo Alto Humane Society and foster animals and those kinds of things, which was very successful. And so I went to the Summit for the Animals to debate in favor of TNR. And Ingrid Newkirk of PETA was there to debate in favor of Roundup and Kill. And there were other people there to talk about fostering and other aspects of these programs that have proved so successful in San Francisco. But the first debate of the summit was me against Ingrid Newkirk. And I wiped the floor with her. I mean, she got flustered and she was upset and she told us crazy story about how that she was, that what I was advocating for sterilization and release of these community cats and setting up feeding stations and, you know, giving them medical attention when, when they needed and watching over them and providing food and water. And uh, she was saying that that was the equivalent of what happened to her once where she had a stalker. And that, that she went to the police because of the stalker and the police said, we can't do anything about the stalker until he hurts you. And she said, that's what I'm advocating by promoting TNR because these cats are going to get hurt down the road and you're waiting until they get hurt. And I responded by your own warped analogy, what you're advocating is that the police should have killed you. Right. I mean, that's, that's the analogy. That's the analogy. <laughs> right. You're saying the police should have euthanized you because you might get hurt by the stalker in the future. And she got flustered and said... Well, she got flustered also because nobody ever challenged Ingrid Newkirk. I mean, working in, in animal, several animal rights organizations, she was basically untouchable. And it didn't matter. I mean, everyone knew what was really going on with PETA. And that's a whole other podcast, but they're, that they're killing of animals. And, you, and Ingrid was not, a, is, and was and is not accustomed to being challenged on by her. By facts. By facts. By right. logic. Right. By, by the evidence, by experience. And that's well, why. Well, so her t ideas had never really been stress tested publicly because uh, she is surrounded by sycophants. So. Correct. And that's why I make the argument that that literally the edifice of killing is built on a house of cards because it is indefensible ethically, it's indefensible factually, but nobody questioned it, right? And when you start to poke, you can see that there is nothing holding it up and it literally collapsed. Which is also why they respond the way that they do. Like you have to scream and, and say that, you know, that the sky is falling and, and act there. The, the hyperbole how dare is, is proportional to the how weak the, uh, their foundation is. Correct. How dare you challenge us? How dare you suggest that and she there's was this other way? Very much the proponent of the Havens of Mercy. Uh, she would call people who kill animals dark angels. And, you know, very much. And she, well, even while much of the movement has moved on, like Ingrid Newkirk is still to this day a right. fierce, fierce opponent of no-kill and so, promoter so of killing. And, and she got flustered and said, I'm out. And that was the end of it because she got crushed in that debate, and rightly so. And 
The second debate was between a man named Roger Tabor, who wrote a, a book about feral cats and the robust, healthy, happy lives they lead. The wildlife and, of the domestic cat. Right. And the a proponent of sterilization in lieu of killing. And arguing in favor of killing was representative of the Humane Society of the United States, but Roger Tabor is a biologist, a cat biologist who studies cats. So he had and facts. At, <laughs> at the time, the probably the world's foremost expert on cats. And he had this multi-part series on BBC, but he just eviscerated HSUS and uh, the summit fell apart. They didn't want anything to do with studies. They didn't want anything to do with intellectual rigor. They didn't want anything to do with, you know, what does the experience show? And in fact, while I was at, uh, in Washington, D.C., and this summit fell apart, I was approached by a, a feral cat group in D.C. who said that Georgetown University was rounding up and killing the community cats. And given that I had this experience with the Stanford Cat Network, would I come and talk to the operations guy and try to convince him to embrace a community cat program modeled after the Stanford Cat Network at Georgetown University? And I did go and meet with him. And but he said, we're going to kill them because PETA tells us that's the right thing to do. Well, I mean, they had the they felt they had the political cover of PETA. Correct. And so these cats that could have been saved at the behest of PETA and at the time, the Washington Humane Society, which was very much in PETA's camp, convinced Georgetown that gave them the political cover, as you said, of rounding up and killing the cats. And, and I would get reports from the cat lovers on campus that they were finding lactating kittens, neonatal kittens. Litters of kittens that had their mothers their had been trapped, trapped and they were starving. Yeah. And lactating mothers were being trapped and killed without regard for the fact that there might they, be kids out kidding. there at the behest of the Washington Humane Society, which has since gone on to embrace more no-kill oriented programs and TNR programs, and at the behest of PETA, which to this day promotes the slaughter of, of healthy kittens and cats. I think that the experiences that you and I had living in the Bay Area and then seeing this model firsthand that was an alternative and this narrative that had flourished in the, in the animal rights movement or this, this dichotomy that was allowed to emerge that there was somehow a difference between animal welfare and animal rights because this need to justify the killing that the animal protection movement itself was doing in animal shelters really was so profound for both of us that that was the moment. You know, th those experiences are why we decided as animal rights activists. I mean, very clearly, our goal was bring a true animal rights orientation to the yeah, animal, animal to animal sheltering, which basically just means bringing the entire movement back to its, fa to its founding mission yeah. of what of what Henry Berg did. So that's what you and I set out to do. So what happened next was you uh, graduated from law school. And we got married shortly thereafter, and economic necessity of student debt meant that you actually were a district attorney until the opportunity presented itself to go back to the San Francisco SPCA and work in that law and advocacy department, which you did for several years, until the, a great tragedy started to unfold at the San Francisco SPCA. But, so today, if you were to talk to many of the people that work at the San Francisco SPCA, I don't doubt, or residents of the city have no particular understanding of the history there, of the greatness that, of what the San Francisco SPCA inspired, the, the changes that occurred across the country because of what happened in San Francisco. That history has been lost because of what happened 
how that organization became basically co-opted and abandoned that mission. So which caused us to then make a move, another move that we'll talk about in the next podcast. That would have profound profound consequences. consequences. So um, talk about what happened. So why don't we talk about the San Francisco SPCA anymore in terms of innovation? We only talk about it in a historical sense. Well, it started to go wrong in 1998. And so I had, as he said, left the San Francisco SPCA formally as a full-time employee. Because you were in, you were working there when you were in law school. Right. To become a district attorney, even though I did projects for them as a consultant during that. And even though period. you focused a lot on animal cruelty cases as a district attorney, yeah. kind of got the nickname as the doggy the, the DA. Do- yeah, the doggy DA. And I worked on. Um, you still, we and you were still a board member of the Palo Alto Humane Society. I was a board member of the Palo Alto We did a lot Humane of Society. rescue still. We were still very much animal advocates, but we, we had, needed to, we needed to feed ourselves. We had created. Through the Palo Alto Humane Society, we had created a program called CatWorks that took care of about 2,000 community cats across the entire peninsula from South San Francisco, abutting San Francisco, all the way to San Jose. And also doing work as a consultant for the San Francisco SPCA. For example, a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors heard there were a few reports of dogs and cats that were being transported on airplanes, pets that people were flying with, were dying on airplanes and coming into San Francisco. And when they opened up the cargo hold, these animals would be dead and he wanted to do something about it. So I was hired as a consultant to write a report and to make recommendations, which included for me draft legislation to retrofit airplanes because of how these animals were being held. They were literally running out of oxygen and suffocating. Unfortunately, by the time I finished that report, the member of the Board of Supervisors went on to something else and interest was lost, but it ultimately was picked up by a New Jersey senator introducing Congress and a version of that bill that I wrote was signed into law by then President, President Bill, Clinton. Bill Clinton. So I eventually came back to the San Francisco SPCA. Rich Avanzino left the organization for another pursuit. In his place, a man named Ed Sayers was hired who came from the American Humane Association. So, you, Which tells you a lot, yeah, given our very discussion. Mindset and not committed to the vision or mission that the San Francisco SPCA had re-pioneered in the modern area. But but very much identified with a archetype of the animal protection movement uh, at that time. He did, like he had no real passion for animals, but he just kept falling up because the animal movement at that time yeah. was so incredibly corrupt. Correct. And within a very short period of time, against my efforts of trying to stop the hemorrhaging, he started to dismantle the nuts and bolts programs that made San Francisco not just so successful, but so inspiring for the rest of the country that essentially launched the modern no-kill. Ed Sayers would, would eventually leave San Francisco and go to work at the, to head the ASPCA. And while he was there, uh, after he left there, he went on to become a spokesperson for the puppy mill industry. Correct. He was a paid spokesperson Correct. as the former president of the ASPCA saying, I got it all wrong. Puppy mills are fine. They're and great. shelter dogs are dangerous. And shelter. And so truly, this is truly an the, awful human being. Yeah, he's awful. So right. this is the man that the San Francisco SPCA put yeah. in charge with maintaining the legacy. The no-kill mission. And right. so obviously it was going to so be a disaster. It went south yeah. very right. quickly. And so... While you were working there. Yeah. And I tried to fight against them and I spent my years under his leadership, <laughs> quote unquote, 
yeah. fighting efforts to dismantle those programs. And I remember once when you and I, before we were married, and it is such a defining moment for me where I was working at the San Francisco SPCA under Rich Avanzino, and we were innovating across this wide range of issues. And we had the lowest death rate of anywhere in the country. And so we were on the verge of creating the nation's first no-kill community. And you and I were at dinner. We were having a vegan Thai food on the corner of Sutter and Steiner in San Francisco. And I dropped you off at the restaurant. I went to park the car because anyone who's ever spent time in San Francisco knows parking is a nightmare. A nightmare. And so I was driving around looking for parking and it was, it was summer, but you know, as Mark Foggy. Twain said, the, co coldest. the coldest winter I ever spent was the summer I spent in San Francisco. And so I dropped you off at the restaurant and I went to park the car and I remember I was walking to the restaurant and I walked by a bus station and there was a San Francisco SPCA advertisement, a San Francisco SPCA poster about one of the programs of the San Francisco SPCA. And I remember being just overcome, like, here I am, you and I were going to get married. We were in the safest city for homeless animals in the United States. We were part of that. We helped bring it about and the future looked so bright for the animals and that I knew that if there was ever an animal in the city that needed help, the animal had a place to go. The animal had a champion. And it, then it went south under Ed Sayers. I think at that point that you realized that the San Francisco SPCA was poised to do something nobody had ever done, which was create the nation's first truly no-kill community. There's some confusion sometimes. We'll read histories of, of Rich Evanzino or the San Francisco SPCA, and there's the perception that they were the first no-kill community. And in fact, that didn't happen, not because it couldn't, but because the San Francisco SPCA, under new leadership after Rich left, willfully abandoned that mission. But what they did do was create the model wh whereby it was possible. Where no-kill went from the theoretical to the Yeah, theoretical. and if, there, if certain things would have happened, and the San Francisco SPCA had continued on the same trajectory that they were on. They certainly would have achieved what, what would later happen elsewhere. And that's, I think, was, was so, so formative for you and for me was this idea that we were part of history, that, right. that we were witnessing history. And this is, uh, and, and the fact that there were so many organizations opposing the San Francisco SPCA, what they were doing, and it was the fight was so public, was evidence that it was definitely on to something and that things were happening and there was a seismic shift occurring. And we were winning. And, and we, we were, were changing hearts and minds around the country and communities were trying to replicate what we were doing. And we had reduced the killing of kittens by 96%, others by almost that much. And we were a whisper away from ending the killing of all but irremediably suffering animals. And all we had to do was reach out and take it. And at that time, the model for other SPCAs and humane societies to follow, it's not just that it was succeeding in San Francisco and helping animals. But it, it was truly what it meant for an organization to embrace that sort of agenda, what it meant for that organization, because at that time, the San Francisco SPCA was absolutely beloved in the city. Everybody knew it was so beloved. And they're like, tell the story of when you were fighting the glue traps in the public housing, what happened? Well, it was glue traps in City Hall, and I was driving to work 
And I was listening to the radio, the news, and there was a report that the president of the board of supervisors, a man named Tom Amiano, had said that they have a bit of a mouse infestation in City Hall. And so they were going to put out glue traps to kill all the mice. And I remember being horrified and I got to work and I called my staff into my office and said, this is what I just heard on the radio. Let's wage a campaign against this too instead of killing these animals in one of the most horrific ways possible, let's get City Hall to mouse-proof, to rodent-proof, to... Figure out where they're getting in and block those and holes block and solve those the problem holes, that way. Right. And so we, the first thing we do in our campaign is we launch what was our called our advocates list, our lovers, lovers list. Lovers list. Yeah. And we put out the call to get people to start calling the board of supervisors and tell them that this is cruel and that they don't want to do it. And I went to do a morning meeting and I came back about an hour later and I put in a call to Tom Amiano. And I got his assistant who said, I, I said, I'm calling for Supervisor Amiano. And this is Nathan Winograd from the San Francisco SPCA. And she said, hold, please. And he got on the phone and he said, Nathan, call him up. <laughs> I surrender. <laughs> we will, we will rodent proof. There will be no glue traps. And I said, thank you, Tom. And I hung up. So that's the kind of power of the San Francisco SPC. And how I, loved it was right, because, that we could rally so many people so quickly to put a stop to a cruel plan that all it basically required was me picking up the phone and the second most powerful man in San Francisco, the president of the Board of Supervisors, wave the white flag. That And that's what the San Francisco SPC was. So it, to, to witness what happened next was sort of like witnessing the death of the... the I, I think about that what happened to the ASPCA and it breaks my heart, but I witnessed the dis, the death and destruction of the San Francisco SPCA firsthand. And, and you would you were when you were working there, I would drop at that time. You know, our, we we had our kids and they were very little. And I remember every every day I would drop Riley off at the preschool, and you would call me right about then to tell me what the latest nightmare was that Ed Sayers was inflicting on the San Francisco SPCA, what program he was shutting down. What terrible decision he'd made that was just eviscerating San Francisco's success and, and, and the potential, the embodied potential of, of going further. I not think. just what it meant for the animals of San Francisco, but what it meant for the no-kill movement nationally and the fact that we were so close. Uh, and uh, So talk about that because there was, a, a, there was one decision that was made that sort of put the... So was rang the death knell for San Francisco. Of, besides his uncaring and his incompetence, one thing that was driving the closure of all these nuts and bolts programs that brought the death rate so incredibly low was he wanted to build a football field-sized hospital, what ultimately became the largest veterinary hospital in North America. And it wasn't to help the homeless animals. It wasn't to help the community cats. It was to bring in revenue by catering to fee-for-service clients of San Francisco's wealthy neighborhoods. And he wanted specialty, specialty uh, practices like ne neurologists and cardiologists. And my argument to him was, we already have those in the city and we have several specialty hospitals already operating in the city and for more uh, obscure issues the university of california davis veterinary college 
and hospital is an hour away. So there is no need and no specialty that is not available for those who can afford to pay for it. And the financial pressure of building such an expensive hospital and having to bring in revenue to make, to make the hospital function by catering to San Francisco's wealthy pet owners would put pressure on programs that served the animals who had no one to advocate for them, homeless animals and animals at the pound because the pound was not willing to put medical effort into saving them and the pets of the poor and the pets of the homeless. So one of the programs that I ran, first of all, we already had also a veterinary hospital. It saw 30,000 plus patients a year and I was in charge of it and ran it on a kind of county general hospital model where nobody was turned away. And if you could pay, you paid. If you could only pay so much, you paid on a sliding scale. And if you were a, a, a homeless person, for example, and you couldn't pay at all, then you, you didn't pay. And I explained that if we took a small amount of the money he proposed for this fee-for-service hospital, capitalized the existing hospital, and put money into expanding these other programs for the pets of the poor and for homeless animals and for animals at the pound and for community cats and that we could create a no-kill community. And, uh, and expanding the, using that money for medical care for the animals that were still at risk right. in San Francisco. Correct. So to, don't build the hospital. Take, we already have a hospital. Take that money and use it to close the safety net. So right. that the only Filling animal, gaps in the safety right. net where animals were and, still and, dying. And we will truly eliminate the killing of of all healthy and treatable animals in the city of San Francisco, an unprecedented achievement. Right. And, but I wanted to go further. So, well, first of all, Ed Sayers wanted the hospital because it what? was sexy. Because it was sexy. Right. And right. He, he could strut around, you know, conferences as the guy who runs the largest veterinary specialty hospital in North America. So I went to the board at a meeting where they were going to decide whether to build this hospital, which would necessitate closing these other programs. And I argued, defying him, I told the board that not only should we make uh, San Francisco no-kill by banning the killing of all but irremediably suffering animals by expanding all these programs, but I wanted to create what I called cradle-to-grave life-saving care for every animal in San Francisco basically universal veterinary care for any animal from the moment they were born to the moment that they died, hopefully at a ripe old age, that they would be guaranteed medical care, that they would have programs to help them stay in their homes. And if they lost their homes, that they would be guaranteed a new home. And I explained to them that while we were the most successful community in the United States, we could not rest on our laurels. Uh, and because other communities were modeling themselves. Yeah, you had created us. a brochure based on the, uh, like kind of a, the moonshot with the moonshot language right. of what, what was a po what was possible. And this was being distributed, this brochure. Do you All remember what it was called? It was called Mission Possible. Mission Possible. And it and had uh, President Kennedy talking about landing a man on the moon. It had space images. And this was going to be the movement's moonshot. And I told them that we, we had mailed it to shelters across. We had did. We had done what the regressive 
shelter organizations did in 1974. With, the, with their last program. We placed thousands and we sent it to every shelter in the country. So you knew. So basically what you were saying is, look, I, everyone's looking to us and there are going to be shelters that are emulating what we're doing and they're going to surpass us because this is a, we're on the road and we're not at the end of it yet. And they're going to get on that road and they're going to pass us. And if we, we don't right, get there first, we someone ought, else will take that. Right. We ought to be the first no-kill community. And more than that, we ought to be the first community in the world that offers universal veterinary care. From so, the cradle to so that grade. sounds very exciting for a nonprofit organization to be to, to do all those things. So what did they decide? They voted unanimously against me and unanimously for the hospital. And they ultimately would build that hospital and dismantle the, the programs that made San Francisco so successful and the crown jewel of the no-kill movement would slip into obscurity and mediocrity. And ultimately, you couldn't, we couldn't justify you staying there anymore. Well, I mean, so even to the point where the foundational program that provided free spay neuter for about 10,000 animals a year. Every day, the legions of feral cat caretakers across the city would bring their cats to the SPCA, not just for free spay neuter, but we actually paid them $5. Yeah, I remember, I mean, you would, at that point, you were paying people to let you To let spay, spay neuter their animals cat. for free. And Sayers closed the program and turned all those feral cat caretakers away. It was a day that I called Black Monday. So fighting, constantly fighting Ed Sayers, he finally brought me to his office. And he said to me, what do you think of me as a boss? And I told him, you are the worst boss I have ever had. Truth bomb. Yeah. And it became clear that it was, my continued it, tenure there was, was untenable. untenable. Yeah. And so at that point, we faced a choice. I mean, you and I, we kind of just bought a house in the Bay Area. We had two small children, but we had seen what was possible, right? And that was what the cause that we really had wanted to dedicate our lives to, fixing the animal protection movement because it was so messed up. And we knew that we could, what would happen if you went to a community? Like we believed in that model that was created. And there were people that were experimenting across the country with different components of that model, but no one taking it to its logical conclusion with what happens if you completely take killing off the table and you do only these programs instead. And you do it at a municipal shelter, the and, proverbial open door Right, because shelter. that was a criticism that the San Francisco SPCA, people were confused about the model that the San Francisco, that allowed, that they thought San Francisco's success was based on the fact that there was San Francisco pulling animals from animal c control that was killing them. And that certainly helped animal care and control. Well, because but, there were two shelters operating in the city but instead it, of but one. But you knew and I knew that 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 wasn't what the magic formula was. Yeah, it, it wasn't, wasn't a collaborative model. It was a programs model that if any shelter, even a municipal shelter working alone, implement without another sh private that shelter. That wasn't necessary, have, right. right? It's helpful, but it's right. not necessary. If they comprehensively implemented all those programs pioneered in San Francisco and took killing off the table, that they could end the killing, even in the proverbial open door municipal shelter. So believing in that model and knowing that San Francisco had abandoned it, we decided, well, let's find a place where you can implement that model in earnest. What happened next? 
I would ultimately leave the organization and a year later create the first no-kill community in Tompkins County, New York. That will be what we discuss in part three of our podcast series yesterday, today, and tomorrow, Animal Sheltering in the United States. If you want to learn more about these and other animal issues, visit NathanWinograd.com, AllAmericanVegan.com, NoKillAdvocacyCenter.org, and subscribe on Substack.